Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to our second season of Medtronic Talks. In our first season, we spoke with the leaders of Medtronic's operating units to better understand the direction of each of the businesses. Now, with their courses set and clear, we're going to talk to the engineers, scientists, physicians, and other experts who are executing on these strategies. We'll still keep a tight focus on each of Medtronic's businesses, but we are going to get a lot deeper into these stories. Let's go. Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Medtronic Talks podcast. Our guests today come from Medtronic's Respiratory Interventions Group. We had on the program today, Quan Gollum, she is Senior Director of Global Marketing, and Peter Ingalls, he is Engineering Director. And we focused our conversation on the McGrath Mac Video Laryngoscope, the device which really combines the simplification of uh, being able to intubate a patient with the, uh, the benefits of a, a video element. Uh, it was one of the first portable laryngoscopes to have a video component. Uh, really has given Medtronic in the eyes of Quan and Peter an opportunity to grow its respiratory interventions business. So we'll, we'll talk a great deal about that and, of course, about their backgrounds. They both have very uh, unique backgrounds uh, coming into MedTech and Medtronic. But, of course, before we begin this episode, I'd like to bring in our sponsor, Freudenberg Medical. I'm speaking with Tog Erickson. Tog is Vice President of Sales for Freudenberg Medical's Specialty Components Group. Tog, tell us about Freudenberg Medical. Yeah, hi, Tom. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, Freudenberg Medical uh, serves as a global partner to OEMs throughout the medical device industry with product design, development, and uh, manufacturing services. Basically, we manufacture medical components and devices to OEM specs. Thermoplastic and silicone molded and extruded components are a key competency, as well as a complete contract manufacturing services. Our finished catheters and other devices serve pretty much every disease state, any type of vascular access, gastroenterology, cardiac. We have 11 locations worldwide located in all the major med tech clusters for minimally invasive handheld and catheter-based devices. We design and manufacture catheter shafts, plug-and-play handles, hemostasis valves, hypotubes, and complex extrusion. We'll hear a bit more from Freudenberg Medical a little later in the podcast. If you'd like to find out more information right now, go to Freudenberg Medical's website. Freudenberg Medical is at freudenbergmedical.com. Freudenberg is spelled F-R-E-U-D-E-N-B-E-R-G Medical. Now let's begin this episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast. Well, Quan Gollum and Peter Ingalls, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you both for joining us today. Uh, I obviously want to understand more about the intubation space and the story of aircraft. There's a lot going on here, but we're always uh, always like to start off these podcasts with uh, understanding a person's uh, personal and professional journey that brought them to Medtronic and kind of uh, helped them find their role at Medtronic. So, Quan, if you would start us off, how did you find your way into the medtech industry? I actually started my career at GE in the leadership development program. Um, and that was really a crash course in um, finding solutions to complex problems. This is where I was rotating every six months to different businesses in different locations. Um, during that period of time, from a personal perspective, I had an event where my, my dad had a stroke. And for me, it was an intersection of, in my day job, I was a lean six in the black belt, driving process improvement in plastic pellet production. 
And then I was helping my dad navigate through the healthcare system post-stroke and just saw a ton of inefficiencies in, in how he was getting care. And that was a personal call to action where I felt like there was something I could contribute in that space. And that's what led to my pivot into healthcare. I started first with uh, J&J, a couple years in Asia, based out of Shanghai, working in strategy and marketing roles, and, and then had the opportunity to join Medtronic and, and have had the opportunity to work in a couple of divisions where you hear externally us talk about Medtronic mission. And in working through um, our neurosurgery, our neurovascular, and now respiratory division, I've really been able to see a spotlight in each segment of the mission in terms of the technologies that we bring to, to the patients that we serve. That's amazing. We hear that that story a lot of a parent who is uh, in need of medical care and either the person is happy they're in the medtech industry or they're kind of turned on to the medtech industry as a result of that interaction. How did uh, your dad's uh, story uh, unfold? Um, he's no longer with us, unfortunately. And, and in his journey, we also uncovered all other opportunities. He developed neuropathy, he developed spasticity, and his quality of life was was really, really impacted. And I think our personal journey through that only reinvigorated the work that we do in terms of being that intersection between technology and, and healthcare. And so it's in his memory that the work that I do every day when I wake up and we talk about putting the patient at the forefront, I have him in my mind. Wow, that's very powerful. Peter, I'm, I'm sorry to make you follow up that very fantastic story. I mean, I, and, I, and, I, and I do hear that frequently and I have a similar, a similar vein in my story as well. But Peter, how did you find your way into the medical device industry? Um, yeah, thanks, Tom. Mine was probably led purely by curiosity. My background is in both, uh, I studied masters in both product design as well as mechanical engineering. From there, I, I actually was here in college, I started up my own design consultancy. And uh, my very first client was a gentleman called Matt McGrath, who's the name that's, that's on the product that we're talking about today. You know, kind of through that journey, you know, I got involved in, in some of the very early development of, of the McGrath video, the Ringescope. Um, and later on, he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And so uh, I, I joined Aircraft Medical in 2007. And then, yeah, full-time, just really just kind of working on that product and, and later the acquisition into, into Medtronic. What advice do you give to, to engineers who are looking at different industries or fields to focus on? I have a, a son who's an engineer to be still in high school, but he wants to be an engineer and he's looking at aerospace. But I keep hearing on that, that I think as an industry, we need to really try to turn young people onto the biomedical industry. I wonder what sort of lessons you could share with young people to maybe have them at least consider more seriously a, a career in biomed. Well, the, the advice I always give to people kind of looking at a career path is, is try and follow your combination of things that you're passionate about and things that you're curious about. Um, this is, it, it just kind of naturally leads your career. Um, and so that would be first and foremost. But I think, you know, within MedTech, the great thing about this is, is the things that we do have such a positive outcome in terms of, you know, improving people's lives and, you know, they're just um, the, the world that we live in today. So, yeah, there, there's a very kind of deep rewarding uh, kind of element to working within uh, Biomed. And so, yeah, th th that would be, uh, you know, the, the drive there. But, um, yeah, follow your, your, your passion first and foremost, I'd say. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that's great advice. So let's talk a bit about then the the, uh, the area where we're, we're focused today, respiratory interventions. Uh, talk a bit about, if you would, the McGrath device and, and how that sort of turned into aircraft medical. And, and then we can pick up where Medtronic's acquisition happened a few years later. But talk about the device itself. What is, what is special about the approach? I would love to start with the patient that we serve. Um, within respiratory interventions, we're really focused on, on the most critically ill. 
Um, so for the McGrath Mac device, which is a video laryngoscope, really two main patient populations. One, um, someone who's in the ICU who's critically ill and requires ventilation for support, or a patient who's in the OR about to get a procedure that requires anesthesia or paralysis and, and also needs ventilations for support. And so the intubation space is really the mechanism for delivering the endotracheal tube in order to deliver ventilation. And so within the respiratory interventions portfolio, we had this broad-based portfolio from intubation, which is McGrath-MAC, all the way to ventilation, as well as the endotracheal tubes that deliver the breath. Interesting. So, Peter, talk a bit, if you would, about the sort of the origin of the uh, McGrath device. What was it that caught your attention and caught your eye, and what was unique about its approach? So, the origin of the McGrath Mac is actually uh, it was born from a uh, student design project. So, Matt McGrath was looking really for a, a project that would really challenge him through his final year within the UK. There's a group of awards called the Royal Design uh, Awards. Um, and, um, you know, looking at those, Matt found this brief for a laryngoscope and digging into it, he'd seen that, you know, really there'd be no significant innovation within laryngoscopy in about 80 years uh, since the, um, you know, since the design of the Macintosh uh, profile blade. And so not really knowing much about this, he thought it would be a, a really, uh, you know, kind of beefy challenge for, for his final year. Um, at college. Um, and, you know, coming out the back end of that, he, he won a number of, of, of design awards, uh, which uh, kind of then kind of transitioned into his seed funding, if you like, uh, which is when Matt and I then kind of met and kind of really then just added, continued to sort of develop through that in terms of like looking at, you know, how could laryngoscopy evolve? And, you know, really the sort of sweet spot that we saw was that, you know, a, a laryngoscope is known as a, a traditional laryngoscope is a direct view laryngoscope. And really that's used for the majority of cases uh, within laryngoscopy. And then at the extreme end, uh, there's an endoscope, uh, which doctors use to help intubate kind of those seriously, uh, critically ill patients. And then there's not really much in between. Uh, there was uh, quite a plethora of, of different options, but nothing was really sticking with the market. And so the, the opportunity we saw was um, kind of looking to add video uh, to, to a device, you know, the, the capabilities of, of endoscopy into something that was much more familiar to an anesthetist in terms of something that they would use every single day. And that's really where the sort of video laryngoscopy piece was, was born. And Quan, when are these uh, these devices used in in the hospital during treatment? Is this is this primarily sort of an emergency care sort of thing? Is this where where would you where are these devices used in healthcare? I am back with Tog Erickson, Vice President of Sales at Freudenberg Medical's Specialty Components Group. Tog, tell me what sets Freudenberg Medical apart from other contract manufacturers in the medtech space. Yeah, Tom, uh, Freudenberg invests heavily in our own R&D capabilities. We're, we're focused on innovation and in manufacturing processes that help make our production more lean and efficient. Results in a lot less waste, less cost for our customers. We've rolled out uniform equipment, software, and global quality systems at all our locations. So, so customers can be assured that they have the same experience at any of our facilities worldwide. Uh, and that also includes redundancy in equipment. Uh, as a function of risk management for our customers. And finally, Tag, you've got a great perspective on the industry. Tell me, what challenges do you see for the industry and where can Freudenberg Medical help? 
Well, one of the biggest changes in the industry recently is a shift in production from outside the U.S. to domestic manufacturing. Uh, primarily, the shift is from the as is from the Asian markets, because we have facilities worldwide. Uh, we are able to serve customers whether they wish to remain in Asia or bring their molding and extrusion and contract manufacturing back home or to near home, say Latin America. Additionally, as a result of the pandemic, many of our smaller players in the industry have really struggled or even closed as a result of market pressures. Freudenberg Medical has benefited from this because we are a large global stable manufacturer. Right now, we are seeing a focus from our OEMs on risk management due to supplier stresses and what appears to be a trend towards supplier consolidation, meaning towards big, stable organizations that aren't going to go anywhere. The other big topic is a key risk for, as a key risk for our OEMs is the material supply chain. Freudenberg Medical is a good fit right now as well for mitigating supply chain risk. Because we're global, we can manage the same materials and technologies to produce components at multiple locations around the world. And I should note that Freudenberg as a corporate organization is also a multi-billion dollar molding manufacturer. The Freudenberg family of companies and Freudenberg Medical have been able to leverage our massive material buys to maintain material supply throughout the current material supply chain challenges when many of our competitors, frankly, have not. All right. That's great. Thank you, Todd Erickson. And thank you, Freudenberg Medical, for being part of the Medtronic Talks podcast. Once again, if you need more information, you can go to freudenbergmedical.com. Freudenberg is spelled F-R-E-U-D-E-N-B-E-R-G medical.com. And Quan, when are these uh, these devices used in in the hospital during treatment? Is this is this primarily sort of an emergency care sort of thing? Is this where where would you where are these devices used in healthcare? It's shifted quite a bit with the pandemic. So I started with the two different patient populations. Um, the patient in the ICU is typically uh, more of an emergency situation. They require intubation um, for respiratory support. The patient who's in the OR, let's say they're going in for open heart surgery, um, typically the anesthesiologist will pre-oxygenate them. And that an intubation process is, while it's a planned process, the clock is running, right? I know you did a talk with Dan Volts on the neurovascular business. And on the neurovascular side, we talk about how time is brain. On the respiratory side, time is oxygen. So, so that process of intubation, think about the oral um, anatomy from the opening of your mouth to the back of your throat, you're trying to deliver um, an endotracheal tube, which is a narrow tube, and you're trying to navigate over the tongue back to the trachea. The traditional direct laryngoscope has is essentially a metal blade that helps the clinician navigate, provides a light for the clinician to navigate to the back of the oral cavity, and then it requires a little bit of manual uh, manipulation in order to move the top of the mouth out of the way so that they have a clear line of sight and view to enter the endotracheal tube. The video laryngoscope, where the innovation comes in, is it takes the eyesight from outside of the mouth and places it to the end of the the blade. So the clinician is essentially at the back of the mouth. We have a video, the handle of the McGrath Mac, that enables to see clearly at the back of the oral cavity so that they're able to more easily navigate the endotracheal tube. So whether it's an emergency situation or planned situation, what it results in is a higher success rate of first-pass success. It also lowers impact to airway trauma as well as unintended impact of an extended period of time where the patient is without breath. 
Mm-hmm. And, and time is is oxygen. What does that mean? Every second you don't, every second that passes is a second the body is without oxygen. I matter. Is that is that how we should understand that? Not necessarily every second is without oxygen because a patient is pre-oxygenated. But okay. think about it as you have a clock that started. And so your ability to deliver the endotracheal tube in the first pass, when we talk about first success, really sets up the rest of the procedure for success. And Peter, how long is this? How long is the device? How far down does it need to go down in, into the oral cavity? It's quite a short device. Um, so it, 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 it's inserted in through the mouth uh, and it's uh, primarily just holding the tongue out of the way. Is the, there's a section on it called a blade, which holds the tongue out of the way. And then as, as, uh, that blade is, I think, about 300 millimeters long. And then as Quan said, there's a uh, camera at the tip as well as a light source that then allows you to just sort of see, uh, you know, the opening to your trachea. So if you kind of feel your neck, the little bump in the middle is where your Adam's apple is. That's where your vocal cords are. So the camera is about 50, about 50 millimeters closer to the top of your head from there. Um, and that's just where, where the opening is to your airway. It's a sort of Y section in your, your anatomy. So behind there is the esophagus. And that's the uh, that's ultimately you know, what we're trying to avoid. Uh, if we place the endotracheal tube into the esophagus, um, whilst it doesn't do any damage to the patient, it certainly doesn't help uh, with the, the sort of ventilation. So the camera just helps you visualize that you've placed the endotracheal tube in the right domain. And was that the, the primary uh, advance of, of the McGrath system and the system you, you started working on, the placement of that camera? And, and was that a particularly challenging engineering? It certainly was. And so the benefit at that point, uh, as Quan mentioned earlier, you know, with a traditional laryngoscope, you're, you're looking in through the mouth. Yeah. So you can only see what you can see in terms of a direct line of sight. Uh, by placing the camera at the tip of that scope, you can actually see around the corner. So if you imagine, you know, your your airway being at a right angle through the neck, placing that that that, that camera at the tip allowed you to see around that right angle. And so for some patients which either have a neck collar, they've had some sort of cervical spine injury, you know, and it's just it's not appropriate to mm. be kind of putting on the same amount of force that you would use with a direct view laryngoscope which can be nearly six and a half kilos of force being applied to the tongue. So it's, it's quite a large amount of force in, in, a, in a routine use case. So with that video, we could minimize force, minimize trauma, uh, and you know, kind of minimize any kind of further complications in, in, in that patient caseload. The engineering challenge was certainly uh, a big one. What we launched with the McGrath Series 5 was the world's first fully portable video laryngoscope. So we managed to kind of shrink and combine all of the electronics, all the hardware into just a handle uh, with a screen that was held on that handle. There were two kind of lead competitors in the market at the time, and this was a cart-based system. So it required, a, if you like, a PC tower and a monitor oh, wow. and a cart, and then an umbilical that then led over to the handle. Now, what that meant was that, you know, when you were trying to intubate the patient, you were looking off to the side, away from the patient. And what we wanted to do was really kind of bring much more of a sort of patient-centric kind of technology to intubation, uh, really leaning on the traditional kind of DL kind of technique and making sure that the, you know, the patient was, was front and center and, and any complications that were coming there were, were clearly in your periphery. Interesting. I was going to offer an analogy to the sure. revolution that McGrath Mac has been able to drive. One of the analogies we've been using internally is this concept of... Um, the, the rear view mirror, when traditional driving, you're used to using a rear view mirror to get visibility from what's behind you. And then within the automobile industry came the evolution of the camera uh, mirror in terms of having better, better visibility behind you. And often it's for things that you can't anticipate that you use, that you use a camera view. 
the McGrath Mac and the form factor, its portability, its ability to drive visibility from outside of the mouth to the back of the to the back of the oral cavity is that same analogy where it's made it. It was the form factor is so compact and it fit into the current flow of use that it helped really drive that evolution towards not being a niche product that's used for the most difficult airways, but really being positioned as something that is viable for routine use. So instead of the first reach for the DL, the direct laryngoscope, um, the market development that we're driving is the first um, instrument that you pick up is the VL, it's the McGrath Mac. That's a great point. And 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 I hadn't really occurred to me, and it's pretty clear that most patients who have required this sort of device have gone through some trauma and need to be treated carefully. Uh, you mentioned, Quan, earlier on uh, the impact of COVID. How has that changed things? Just the sheer number of people who have needed this sort of assistance, or has it changed the need for this device to, in, in, in another way other than just demand? Yeah, I think it's a lot of the same themes that you've talked about with other parts of the business across Medtronic. So one is the shift from elective procedure to more emergent procedures in the ICU. So while the number of intubations have remained the same, the mix that occurred during the height of the pandemic in the ICU versus the OR was more heavily weighted toward the ICU. The other factor that has emerged, and, and these are things that I think you've heard from others, there's staffing shortages, there's challenges to training and support. And so the video laryngoscope from form factor, from an easy use perspective, there's a shorter learning curve for someone to learn how to intubate with a VL versus a DL. It also facilitates easier training, right? So imagine you're able to look at the video um, image of the back of the oral cavity on the McGrath Mac versus trying to have someone look over your shoulder and look towards the end of the direct lens scope. It also creates more of a distance between the patient. And especially early on, I think we saw some practices where, you know, you would surround the patient with almost a clear box and you would try to intubate from outside of the clear box. And so that distance, that protection and safety for the clinician still remains very important. And that's something that um, VLs is, does enable. That's a great point in that there's a, such a shortage of healthcare workers. It seems that you need to be able to, devices going forward probably have to be simpler than they had been in the past. I wonder who typically inserts the, the, the tubes? Is it a physician? Is it a, is it a nurse? Uh, I imagine it's one of those two, or is there someone else in the, uh, in the process that is primarily responsible for insertion? So that would change globally. It's different in different areas of the, uh, in different areas of the world. Um, traditionally, uh, the person who is primarily responsible for the intubation is the anesthetist or anesthesiologist, as they're known here in the U.S., but that can change. Um, uh, commonly in the in the U.S. as well, it's um, CRNAs, uh, nurse anesthetists who who would also kind of perform uh, laryngoscopy and then also the intubation. So, is the need then? Is this something that is is it a byproduct? I suppose that this is a simpler device to insert, or was that already always a primary objective in developing the McGrath? Have you always said we need to make this a simpler process? Or we just needed to make it a better process with, with the video camera. What, where has sort of the skill set required fallen into the design of this device? That's a great question, Tom. And uh, it, it is exactly that. I mentioned earlier Series 5, uh, which was our first uh, laryngoscope. That was primarily aimed at difficult intubations. And what we heard back from clinicians was uh, with the McGrath Series 5, what it did was make a, a difficult intubation easier. Um, but because of the need to use things like uh, adjuncts and stylets, it actually, if they would use it routinely, it would make a routine intubation slightly more tricky. 
So, you know, the ask came back, you know, we love this device. Is there anything you can do really to allow us to use laryngoscopy routinely? And, and that was the sort of, if you like, the seed uh, question that uh, really kind of drove us to kind of come up with the McGrath Mac. And, you know, the thinking behind that is really kind of taking all of those benefits that we saw in terms of difficult airway management by using a, a video laryngoscope and, and really bringing those benefits to, to the routine that, that, that Quan was touching on earlier. And so, you know, kind of using less force being able to share the view with a peer so you could apply cricoid pressure to help kind of bring the vocal cords into view is, is, is just some of the benefits. But one of the biggest is, um, you know, as, as laryngoscopy was born or video laryngoscopy was born, one of the key messages from lead clinicians within uh, the community was, please, please don't use your video laryngoscope for the first time when performing a difficult intubation. Make sure you're familiar with the device. Make sure that you really know that device well so that it's the patient that's difficult, not the device that you're using. So by bringing video laryngoscopy into routine use and making routine use easier as well, as your patient gets more tricky, fundamentally, you're already using your, your difficult airway piece of equipment. And what we're seeing is there's a growing number now of, of clinical evidence that shows that more difficult intubations are actually unanticipated, uh, which means the clinician was not able to anticipate that they were going to have difficulty when placing that endotracheal tube pre-induction of the patient and, and kind of paralyzing the lungs. Juan, what, what happens in, in the case of a difficult intubation? What sort of damage is done down there? So I think the biggest impact is airway trauma. And then as well with any key procedure, um, the longer time that a person is not intubated, it goes back to time Time is breath. Um, there's just a domino effect, right? So mm -hmm. the intubation is that first step in the procedure. That going successfully sets the tone for the rest of the procedure. And we've also seen data that has shown that if you don't have first pass success, that it could have unintended consequences and the outcome depends on the patient that could lead to longer stays or a longer recovery time. So there's a broader healthcare impact associated with that. Interesting. Building off that, um, I mean, ultimately, there's, there's an end state which all clinicians are looking to mitigate, which is known as a can't intubate, can't ventilate. And so there could be a number of different kind of things that happen if you, you fail at first attempt. You know, there's the natural reflux within the body called a laryngospasm, which kind of closes off the opening to the trachea. And a number of different elements whereby, you know, the, the tissue just through the muscle relaxants being applied during the induction has meant that some of the structure within the airway sort of collapses on itself and you're not able to then kind of actually ventilate that patient. And then if you can't intubate that patient, uh, you're sort of moving into a much more extreme kind of means of managing that airway. Um, and normally they would then move into a sort of what's known as a surgical airway where they would sort of perforate the front of the neck and, and do a tracheostomy. So ultimately, yeah. Trying to avoid those extreme cases is uh, is why first pass uh, success is important. Interesting. Well, let's look forward now. Uh, where does growth come from in in the future for a device like this? Is it ensuring that hospitals have multiple of devices, or I'm sure they already have multiple, having having more devices than they currently do, just so they're available whenever necessary? I imagine that's part of it. Juan, let's let's. Maybe take that that part first. Where do you see growth from the future? And then, Peter, I'd like to hit upon you as to sort of what, if possible, if you could share what design changes we might see in the future. But Quant first, uh, let's look at the market. Yeah, we talked earlier about the impact of the pandemic and what yeah. that was was a part of an ongoing tipping point that's been happening with DL. I'll tie it back to the to the rear view camera analogy. I think when um, rear view cameras first came out in the car, those who were old school and used to looking at your rear view mirror, just 
bypass that as a workflow. And now it's standard in every car. It's a required feature in every automobile. And, and that's sort of the tipping point that we're seeing starting to happen within video laryngoscopes. Um, there was a recent survey about five, about 5,000 clinicians globally. And the number of clinicians who have never touched or used a VL is now below 2%. And the number of physicians who routinely use VL moved from 10 to 30%. So there's a natural shift that's happening from an industry perspective as a result of all of the learnings out of the pandemic. And so what a lot of what we're doing internally is ramping up our manufacturing and production to be able to meet the shift in demand. Um, one thing that we pride ourselves on as Medtronic and where we lead is, is the training and support. So mm-hmm. I talked about how there's a, there's a shorter learning curve. First, there's a staffing shortage, which we recognize. And then second, there's a shorter learning curve for someone who's new to learn to use a VL versus DL. Um, and that's a lot of our market development work is to provide that training and support for someone who is using a VL for the, um, for the first time to overcome that um, first time use barrier. Um, and so, so that's where we're focused, making sure that we ramp up our manufacturing to support the need, and then also work in, working hand-in-hand with our clinicians to support the, the training and development that's needed for adoption. Great. And Peter, how about on the design side? What does the next generation uh, version of this look like, if you can uh, share a few secrets with the podcast listeners? Sure. Well, you know, our, our challenge isn't a small one. You know, we're, we're ultimately trying to replace an 80-year-old piece of technology. Um, anesthetist once joked with me to sort of say, hey, it's pretty brave uh, kind of creating a routine use video or scope. You're fundamentally taking on the bedrock of anesthesia. So, you know, we're, we're, we're fully aware that our, our ambitions here are, are pretty bold. And, you know, as we look to the future, of course, you know, one of the things we have to make sure is that the next gen McGrath Mac is as easy to use as the traditional devices today. But of course, the OR is evolving, right? The OR of tomorrow does not look like the OR of today. So, you know, there's a little bit of kind of working with peers across Medtronic, uh, trying to predict, you know, what does that OR look like? And how do we make sure that the McGrath Mac uh, with its video capability fits into that OR setting of the future? In the same way, the Macintosh uh, direct view laryngoscope, you know, has been a fundamental tool uh, for, for the last 80 years. Fantastic. And Quan, we didn't really talk about uh, about sort of the business side reimbursement and such. How, how are things looking uh, in, in that field? Are there any hurdles or anything you, you've overcome or looking to overcome or any challenges coming up in, in the future? One news that we received recently is we just received reimbursement in Taiwan. And that for us is really just an indication of what's more to come. I shared earlier about how early on VL was really considered a niche use, right, for the most uh, difficult of airways. What we're seeing coming out of the pandemic is this tipping point where there's multiple societies that have come out with guidelines that are um, directing clinicians towards um, McGrath Mac or VL as the first line of use, the first device of use. And so the reimbursement that we recently saw in Taiwan is just an indicator of what we feel like is, is to come uh, in terms of VL becoming adopted as the first line device. Well, I'm I'm really glad that uh, you both uh, found your way into the the medical device industry and and really uh, shown some light on uh, on this interesting area. We haven't really talked a lot about this space, so I appreciate your your time and for and uh, I appreciate your joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate the opportunity.
All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much to Quan Gollum and Peter Ingalls for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, of course, to Freudenberg Medical for sponsoring this episode of Medtronic Talks. And thanks to you, of course, for listening. Please do subscribe to the Medtronic Talks podcast. That way you won't, that way you will not, excuse me, miss a future episode. Uh, we come out with these quite frequently. They'd be easy to miss if you're not subscribing or following. So just find that button on your uh, podcast application and you'll have future episodes of the Medtronic Talks podcast sent directly to you. And of course, you could listen to all the back episodes as well. We've got quite a few. Please do share this episode on social media with your friends and colleagues so more people can listen. And when you do that, I would love to uh, connect with you on social media. Please find me on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. I'm Editorial Director of Device Talks. I'm also on Twitter at MedTechTom. Once again, thanks to Freudenberg Medical. Thanks to Quan Gollum and Peter Ingalls. And thanks, of course, to you for being part of this episode. Tune in next time. We'll have another great episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast waiting for you. 